Amen. So glad you're here this morning with us. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. And as mentioned, and as the slide tells there, I think you can see it, the book of Acts. We're going through the, the book of Acts and the scriptures. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to the book of Acts. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. And we would love to gift you a copy of the scriptures. So if that's you, please give us the incredible blessing of being one of the ones who gave you a copy of the Bible. You can get it on your way out. There's a whole big stack of them. Uh, and they look pretty good. They're not just like cheapy, cheapy Bibles. They're pretty good ones. So you should take one uh, if you get one, uh, if you need one. So I'll tell you this. Uh, as we're going through any part of the Bible, but specifically when we spend a lot of time in one book, there's a concern. That we're going to get repetitive. There's a concern, maybe mostly on my part, probably somewhat on your part, that you're going to hear the same kinds of things over and over again. And there is in Christianity a repetitiveness. Come together and I speak to you. My job is not to invent something. My job is merely to take another part of the Bible and tell you about it. Talk with you about it and try to explore it together and apply it to our situation as a church, as a, a people within a people, a church within a city. And yet, uh, if you just read through the Bible, there seems to be the same kinds of themes over and over again. And, and it's for a reason. The repetitiveness that's there is to hammer home a point and to look at something that deserves to be looked at from multiple angles. As I'm thinking about the sort of repetitiveness of talking to you about who you are and who God is, about talking to you about the message of the gospel, I consider it to be one of the things God has commanded me to do is to speak the gospel every time we're together. We talk about more than just the gospel, but we always at least talk about the gospel. We hold it at the highest point as a church of what we do. It's the, the glorious message of how God saves people. It's the difficult message about why God needs to save people, but the glorious message that he does. The exploration of the love of God. And so we, we talk about that same thing over and over again. There's a temptation to see that as a negative. But when I think about what it is that we repeat and the reason that it is so central to what we do as people who are exploring the Bible, exploring what God has revealed to us and, and taught us about, there's a, a beat to it, something like a drum. There's a repetitiveness to it or a beat to it that you need as an army that marches requires that drum beat so that they all step in tune. There's a unification that goes on with it. There's something about music that requires a steady beat. Maybe they manipulate the tempo to one degree or another, but that beat becomes the foundation for this melody that grows out of that beat. Inspiring, connecting, exposing uh, a beauty. My prayer, my hope, is that as we're going through this text and we're seeing the same things again and again, that there will be a landing that takes place where these things will start to really get traction in your soul, but also that there will be in your own heart a repetitiveness of coming back again and again and again to the gospel, to the cross, to see the message that God has preached writ large through this, this guy, this Jesus, 
And the incredible impact that he had and the the world-changing, world-shaping and shaking impact of his life. The book of Acts does a really good job of watching, uh, helping us watch as as the message that Jesus preached and the, the calling that he gave his people resounds from this one spot. It's like a gong beat. And that, that pulse moves out from that place as it spreads throughout the world. A spreading that you're still part of today that Nick and Kendra represent, but that also we represent. I don't know if you've noticed, but we are not very close geographically or, or culturally to Jerusalem. Uh, We represent the gospel being spread to the furthest corners of the world. And why we think about that is because in the book of Acts, the whole, the idea of the book is that that great commission that Jesus laid on his disciples. So remember where we're at. Jesus was this guy that came and he began to lead this ministry. And this ministry had teaching that was very interesting and difficult for many people to hear or to agree with. In fact, the religious leadership that were hearing Jesus teach, they began to rebel against Jesus and hate Jesus. So much so, and Jesus saw this coming, it was actually his plan. He was arrested, killed, and then, even though he was killed by humanity, and specifically the religious leadership at the time, he rose from the grave. The great empirical proof of Christianity, the resurrection moment that took place, And then he tells his disciples that it's their job now to make disciples all over the world. And after he tells them that, and that sort of hits for them, they're slowly understanding. They've just begun to understand what it is to be his follower and see his true plan. Not what they thought his plan was, but his true plan. To not just destroy individual governments or destroy individual kind of modes of oppression back in the day. But in fact to destroy the ultimate enemy. Of sin and death itself. As they're beginning to comprehend. As the horizon is beginning to expand for them. Jesus disappears. He ascends to heaven. And that commission rests on their head and on their shoulders. And you think it would just buckle them down. In Acts it's repeated as Jesus commands them to be his witnesses. You have seen, now go and tell people what you've seen. Witnesses. But not just to their friends and family, but in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth. earth. And we see in the book of Acts that beginning to take place as this, this gong gets beat and that resonation takes place. That you and I are part of to today. And as we're studying the book of Acts, we're studying not just what happened for trivia. It's not just an interesting anecdote. This is where you happen to be from. We find in these stories and in these texts for us a charter. That commission that was given, but also the gospel that they're preaching and the way that that church begins to operate. We find in it an example. It's not a perfect place. There's all kinds of problems in this church. And yet we see the Holy Spirit working through them and doing something big with them. Something that we're trying to to follow, to emulate. And we're even given specific individuals in these texts that help us to see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and really fills somebody. If you were with us when we talked about Pentecost, one of the first things that happens in the book of Acts is that Jesus says, you got to wait. 
You can't go yet. You're going to be my disciples and witnesses all over the world. But you've got to wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm going to send my helper. I'm going to send my helper, my encourager. He's going to come. He's going to fill you. Third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is going to fill you with God's presence. And then you're going to be my witness. So we see that Holy Spirit come. And then we see over and over and over again through the book of Acts what it looks like when somebody filled with the Holy Spirit impacts the world. There's one guy in particular that we're going to talk about today, this guy, Stephen. But what, what is this guy? Is he a Michael Jordan and we're going to try and learn to cross over like him? Is he an example of someone who has reached a height that we're going to try and attempt to get some degree of? Oh, I mean, I, I think part of the good news of the gospel is that this Stephen story is, if you're in Christ, already your story. You just have to get back to that same repetitive message of the gospel. One of the reformers, there was a reformation that took place about 500 years ago where the, the church at the time corrected in a lot of ways and, and split. But also, there was a lot of good truth that came out of it. And one of the guys wrote a, a long book about the, just the beliefs of Christians from the scriptures. This guy, John Calvin, he started off that big, big book that he wrote. It wasn't the first sentence, but in the first couple of sentences, this way, he said, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. As we dig into the text, as we dig into what the gospel says, we're going to find really just those things. Who God is and the kind of God we have as we understand who we are and the kind of hearts we have. So let's look at this guy, Stephen, this example that we have. You remember that we talked about last week, the, the church that God had started in this Jerusalem town was expanding, but stuff was happening. And yet, as they would deal with these different difficulties that came up, the church would grow, it would expand. It was like this healthy thing. And as they pruned in one spot or another, health and growth, vitality would result. And yet, the, the latest in this series of setbacks and then growth periods was this division that was taking place where the widows were having uh, difficulty. There was uh, the, this division between the two groups that most needed a lot of the help was these widows that would get a daily distribution of food. And the Jerusalem, the Jewish, Hebrew-speaking widows were being taken care of before or even more than the Greek-speaking widows. Doesn't seem like a big deal. What's the big difference between Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking? But there was. There was a difference. These two groups. And there was division that was taking place in the church. So God allowed the, the wisdom of the apostles to come up with this idea to make deacons, these servants, that would come and address not just the administrative problem about who gets food when, but the more important problem of division and then creating from that some kind of unity for the church. One of these guys is doing exactly what God's called him to do. David mentioned James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's condensing what it looks like for an outflow of the gospel, what that might entail. Ministry to the least of these, those that are hungry and naked and poor, and 
keeping oneself unstained from the world. And this deacon ministry is trying to really engage in a very literal sense this outworking of the gospel with the way that they're going to work with widows in their affliction. And this service that Stephen has blossoms into an even more full ministry. We see in Acts 6, 8 through 10, Stephen, full of grace and power, it's very important to see how the Bible commends Stephen to us. See some genius administrator? See a business leader in Jerusalem and people wanted to be like him and so the apostles elevate him in some kind of leadership? What are the qualities that make this guy Stephen worthy of this incredible biography in Scripture? Well, right here it just says full of grace and power. Filled with the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. This Stephen is doing great wonders and signs among the people. So, he had been in service to the church, and his service to the church was blossoming out into a ministry out into the world. God doing incredible things through this guy, such that people began to argue back against him. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. If you ever have something you believe, really believe, speak about it. It won't be long before somebody disputes you. If it's something stupid... Maybe they don't dispute you because it's not worth talking to you about. You go on and on about how Verizon's better than AT&T. Okay. (laughs) You can have that one. I don't know. I just have Sprint. You know, I'm not even in the conversation. (laughs) You have something that matters, though. There's a disputation. There's a moment where your beliefs get challenged. And this is already a place where I think we can learn something from this Stephen guy. Whether you're inside Christianity or you're examining Christianity, trying to see where you fit, does it make sense, does it not? If you have something you believe, isn't there a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of concern that if you expose it, that somebody's going to take it apart? I think inside the church, definitely this takes place on a pretty regular basis. There's a part of you that thinks that if you are so bold as to express your faith, That pretty quickly, somebody out in the world around you, some eloquent, well-spoken non-believer or believer in something different, which is kind of the same thing, would then just pull it apart. Show you how foolish you are for believing something so weak. This disputation rises up against Stephen. And yet, being filled with the Holy Spirit, this Stephen guy doesn't wilt and hide, protect, Pretend that this thing is strong when he knows that it's it's not because he's not going to expose it to the world. But instead, he speaks. And they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen wins. The gospel is proved to be solid. Let me just encourage you, if you are a Christian, to take your faith and explore how solid a foundation you have. And if you are not a Christian, let me just thank you so much for being a part of Hope Church. You know, we talk about belong before you believe, this idea that you're going to be with us for a time, trying to understand who we are, what we think. We need your skepticism. We need you to help us explore exactly what about this 
thing looks weak from the outside. And so we can see, is it really weak? Are we believing something that's false? Stephen certainly was disputed with. And yet, as he responds, he wins. So what do they do? Do they then repent and believe and say, wow, Stephen, you're right, we're wrong. Is that what we do as humans? Is that what you do if you're in a conversation with your wife? You've got an opinion. She has a differing opinion. How long does it take before you like lock in and you're going to die over your opinion no matter the sensibleness of her opinion? No, baby. We have to set up the dishwasher this way because this is the only and most efficient way to get everything in and clean. Well, sweetheart, what if we, and you know, you go back and forth with this aggressive, it's not passive aggressive, just aggressive aggressive comments back and forth to each other because you lock in, you don't just repent, you don't just walk away. It's not in our hearts to just be objective. Especially about something that we care about. So if you are thinking about Christianity, you are looking at it, can I just ask you, do you consider yourself to be objective? Because the scriptures would say that you're not. Not necessarily that you're these guys and you're trying to kill us or something, but that it's not really possible to ask the question of whether or not there's a God and just be cool about it. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. I don't care. I just want to know what's true. Well, you don't really work that way. If there is a God, then he's now your God. Do you want that? If you don't, it may color the way that you're investigating whether or not there is a God. Something to think about. So these guys, they don't just bow to Stephen's arguments, but instead they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up... False witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. All kinds of interesting stuff here. One would be that this is the same experience that Jesus had. He walks into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, and then we have all of these different groups come up to Jesus and they challenge him. And nobody can stand the wisdom of his responses. Over and over again, you have this refrain of the people going away quiet. They didn't know how to respond. He won. He shut up their mouths. Same thing's happening here. And yet, when Jesus continued to do that, what did they do? They had to trump up some false charges. They had to go a legal route. But not an honest legal route. They had to come up with something False, duplicitous. It says here that there was false witnesses that had to come up against Stephen in order to get him arrested and get him shut up. Because they couldn't argue him quiet. So they had to play dirty. And again, what kind of things does this say? It's interesting to know. And we don't have the time to go through the whole of Stephen's sermon. I wish that we did. But he responds specifically to these things in the way that he responds. What he does is he helps them to see that from the beginning, God has been speaking one clear message. And that in Jesus, this revelation of Jesus, God continues to speak that same message, a message of truth about who we are and how our hearts react to him, and a message of credible grace and mercy and love in the way that God deals with us. 
He's saying there is continuity and that if God speaks a new word, it's going to be a word that fits perfectly with everything he said to this point. God's not a God of contradiction. God's not a God of confusion, but of order. There's a, there's a continuity to this Jesus that comes. If you come up to me and say that you've got a prophecy from God and you want me to, to believe it and bow down to it, well, I would have all kinds of questions. <laughs> It'd be an interesting conversation. I wouldn't expect that. But one thing we would need to make sure is that whatever you're going to say definitely fits with what the Bible has said to this point. Stephen is able to do that. And how? How? Uh, we're running out of time already, but how is this Stephen guy able to gain not only a love for others that you see in the way that he's serving the community, not only a boldness and wisdom in the way that he impacts the culture around him with the gospel, but also an equanimity, a peace, the ability to respond when his persecution is going up, not down. How is it possible? Is it just, again, that this Stephen guy is just incredible? Or is there something different? Well, the Bible is very clear. There's something different. This, this whole ends with this verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Well, what does the face of an angel look like? If you got grandmas, they'd make stuff and doilies and all kinds of like things that they knit. And some of those knitted things include angels. And what do those angels look like? Babies. What do you do when you see a baby? You just get excited. My brother, they just had a baby. She's about five months old now. And when we see May, it's all anybody can talk about. Just hushed tone. Oh, May's here. <laughs> My three little girls, but me and Rachel the same way. We're just, oh, May, and you want to play peekaboo with her and touch her cheeks? <laughs> Nothing intimidating. But what happens in the Bible when an angel comes to be with somebody and speak to them? Do you know? Is that how they react? When they see angels, do they go, oh, oh, oh angel, come here, are you cold? Oh, angel. Is that how they react? No, no, no. The first thing that every angel says whenever they encounter anybody is, don't panic, it's okay. <laughs> whenever angels come, people apparently just melt down because the first thing the angels have to do is just calm everything down. Listen, I got a message. This isn't even the main thing of why I'm here to scare you. I just have a message for you. Because the face of an angel is not just a, this small, like easy, beautiful, perfect little thing. The face of an angel reflects something of the glory of God himself. There's a terror in the face of an angel because the face of an angel is reflecting in some way the unalloyed presence of the Holy One. And you and I are not equipped to stand in the presence of the Holy One. Not as we are. And yet Stephen is already having, this, this guy, he's just a guy, just a deacon, has the face, faces like the face of an angel. If you go through the Bible, there's other places where something similar happens. Moses, when he goes into the presence of God, comes out, and he has to wear a veil because his face is shining. And like people encountering angels, they just can't even handle Moses. They've got to get him to veil his face if they're going to talk to him because his face reflects something of the presence 
of God. How does this guy Stephen get this boldness, this presence, this effectiveness, this joy in the face of persecution? Well, from the beginning, what it meant to be a deacon, they said, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. It says about Stephen in particular that they chose Stephen, a man, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Do you become Stephen through your skill set? Through hard work and study? Man, I'm sure all those things will come. All those things are fruit. But all those things are fruit of the main thing, which is to be His. To be able to be in His presence and enjoy it. To have a heart that beats with a worship of God because you've encountered His love. I'm just going to keep quoting these verses until they get memorized, till they become the heartbeat of Hope Church. Psalm 16 says, Therefore, my heart is glad. Doesn't that sound like Stephen in the face? He's, he's standing in a pit with rocks coming down on him. And yet, his heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. <laughs> for, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol. It's Old Testament for hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. Pleasures forevermore. So this Stephen guy, he preaches to these people. They falsely accuse him. Not looking good. He gets a chance to respond. You and I might respond in a sort of placating way. Listen, things aren't looking good here. I've got some deacon duties to give back to. Maybe we can work something out. Stephen tells these scholars, most of whom have a large majority of the Old Testament memorized. He tells them, he preaches to them, and he preaches to them a storyline of the Old Testament like they need it. But he does. And the reason that he does is he's showing, again, continuity, but he's also showing... That their actions are not unexpected from the Bible. You and I, just like them, have a problem when it comes to God. We're not able to just obey because it's hard for us not to be God ourselves. It's hard for us not only to try and submit to the pleasures that God gives rather than the ones what we want. It's hard enough for us to even admit that God gets to decide what our pleasures are. And again, we might be tempted to soften our words, but Stephen finishes his grand conclusion to his sermon this way. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. They resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now They killed the forerunners, but you, you have killed. You have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They responded about how you expect them to. They pick him up, they run him out, they throw him in a pit, and they all pick up rocks to crush this bug that just told them that they don't know God. And what does Stephen do? (laughs) What does Stephen do from a pit? 
while he's about to be lynched. Now when he heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And of course, they stuff up their ears and they just start killing him. And he does, he dies. He's martyred in that moment. And as he's martyred, he prays that God would forgive them, just like Jesus, following his master. But look what it says. He said that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God as he's about to die. Why? Because even Stephen can't stand before God. Even this guy who was martyred in his faithfulness to the gospel cannot stand before God. We can only stand before God if Jesus stands in front. We can only stand before God if the one who came for us was totally holy and yet died a sinner's death, takes our sin upon himself and puts his holiness on us. The grand exchange is the gospel that we repeat constantly. But to be like Stephen, you have to know that. You have to believe that. It has to have worked its way out in your life and in your soul. See, that quote that I read at the beginning is it's difficult sometimes for us to parse exactly what he was saying just because we're in such a distant spot from the people that originally would have read that. But a modern scholar took it and he kind of respoke it for us. He said, know God, know yourself. Know yourself to know your need of God. And know God to know that you are not God's. That's a bitter pill that we don't want to swallow. But if you will, then you have access. If you'll start there, that's the distinction between a Stephen and a Pharisee, one of these council members who kill him. I don't know how well I've made that clear to you, but my prayer is that you'll let us continue to try and make clear the difference between the the gospel and just religion, man-made religion in the hopes that you'll meet and know, and if you know, that you'll start to be filled with and express that Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, that message that God's given to us. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we go now uh, to this time of the Lord's Supper, and as we think about your word and the example that we have from Stephen, I just ask that you would fill your people with your spirit. Keep us unsafe from the world, Lord. Turn our eyes away from the idols that we build for ourselves like these Pharisees. And instead, Lord, fill us with a desire for you. Make Psalm 16 our prayer as it was Stephen's, that we might have peace even in a stoning pit, knowing that you will not abandon our soul to death and hell because you stand before the Father on our behalf. We pray all of these things in faith, trusting you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.